Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. However, not all interviews feature public company management teams. Every once in a while, I get the chance to interview industry experts, and this is one of those interviews. The podcast is honored to have with us Chris Whalen investment banker, author, and co-founder of Institutional Risk Analytics. And in recognition of the 10th anniversary of the Lehman Brothers collapse, it's a huge honor to have Chris on the program because he was one of the few guys that anticipated the eventual demise of Lehman Brothers and has a really good understanding of what's going on in the banking sector in the United States. Not only does Chris understand markets, but he's also a historian. And he's written several books. One of them is about the Ford Motor Company, and the other two are about debt, money, inflation, and monetary policy. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Chris Whalen. Thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. No, it's my pleasure. Well, could you first start out talking about uh, your background? Just provide us with a brief description of um, who you are and sort of your role in, in, in markets and investing and what you've done just to, I guess, help other investors understand what's going on, especially in the, the banking sector. Great. I started off, um, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. My parents, John and Richard Whalen, were very involved in politics. My dad was a journalist and then became a speechwriter uh, to Richard Nixon. After uh, that, he moved to Washington and we spent 25 plus years there. Um, but I grew up in a, a house full of books. Uh, my parents were Republican operatives in a Democratic town in, in Washington in those days. And if you didn't get an invitation to Jones uh, Christmas party, there was something wrong with you. Um, so I grew up with senators and Fed chairmen and uh, secretaries of defense and CIA chiefs roaming around my house at all hours of the day and night drinking bourbon <laughs> and talking. This is what people used to do in Washington. They would drink and talk and smoke and exchange information and insights, and that's how things got done. I moved to New York in the 90s, worked at the Fed in New York, and became what I am today, which is known as a bank analyst. Uh, I'm an investment banker by background and longtime member of FINRA. So I kind of view the street from that perspective. I'm an odd uh, duck in a sense that I'm a banker, but I write. And so I have this duality as a journalist as well. So, but I've uh, written three books. I've worked on a couple of others and I'll get ready to write another book called Gone Fishing, which is about how central bankers control our lives, even if they don't know what they're doing. So yeah. there you are. <laughs> Uh, I look forward to reading that book. And and what are the other three books that you've written? Uh, 2010, Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. Basically a book, a financial history of the United States. I was convinced to write this book by my good friend, David Kotak, who I go fishing with every summer. Uh, he came up to me one day with a glass of wine in his hand and he said, Chris, write the book. <laughs> and I said, what book, David? And he said, write the book. So when I got home, I got a call from Wiley, and they said, Mr. Whalen, we understand you're writing a book. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, the second book was uh, Financial Stability, Fraud, Confidence, and the Wealth of Nations. So it was basically Fred Feldkamp's work, which I edited and, and rendered into understandable prose. 
a really neat book that starts with Jesus, the temple is a illusion for financial fraud and works forward. Um, and then the third book, which is actually the first book I worked on is Ford men from inspiration enterprise. It kind of reminds everybody how many people were involved in Henry Ford's success. He didn't do this by himself. He didn't, raise wages for his workers. He didn't even invent the assembly line, which is one of the great uh, myths about Henry Ford. But it was a, a fun book to work on. I put it aside because I didn't have a happy ending. I was an investment banker and working at Bear Stearns, and I had met Jock Nasser at the time, and he had bought all of these different brands and spent billions of dollars that they didn't really have. And I didn't want to end the book there, so I put it aside, and then finally they found Alan Mulally, and turn things around, and that's kind of where the book ends. So it's, it teaches you that luck is the most important thing yeah. in business. Yeah. Because the fact that Henry Ford didn't have to file bankruptcy several times is uh, an act of God. It can only be understood in those terms. Yeah, I, I remember hearing in um, a recent interview that you did that um, you, know, you, you mentioned luck, and you talk about it in the context of GM, how they had filed for bankruptcy three times and Ford never did. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you really cite luck as being, you know, one of the key key reasons why Ford never had had to file, which is interesting. Well, but- if, if you, yeah, I mean, in, in the pre-war era when uh, General Motors was controlled by the DuPont Corporation, Alfred Sloan was the prototypical manager and General Motors became the iconic modern corporation had management it was organized had a board of directors ford didn't have any of these things until after henry died and the first 50 years of ford motor company are literally run out of henry's pocket he was the only one who knew yeah especially after james cousins left in uh, 1915 so you know it, it's a miracle they got there it's a miracle they got through world war ii because of the enmity that FDR had for Henry Ford. So it, it just shows you that being in the right place at the right time is a good thing. Because Ford had had two failed businesses. Uh, Ford Motor Company was his third try. So he was very fortunate. He was an old man when he started. Yeah. He was not a spring chicken. So one of the reasons why I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast is... You know, this is the this month marks the tenth anniversary of, I guess you could call it the, the start of the financial crisis, or at least when things really came to a head, especially with respect to Lehman Brothers. And you are credited with being one of the guys who foresaw what was going to happen with Lehman Brothers. And I would love to get your perspective on a, a little bit of background as to you know what role you played during that time period 10 years ago today and also kind of what you're seeing today relative to you know the changes that have taken place uh, in Washington and the new policy and rules uh, that were initiated as a result of the financial crisis and just where things from your perspective stand relative to 2008 in the banking sector sure Well, at the time of the Lehman failure, I was acting as advisor to a bunch of hedge funds. I had my own firm, Institutional Risk Analytics, and that firm published uh, quarterly risk metrics on all U.S. banks. So one of the first things you noticed was that the best performing thrift in the United States was Lehman Brothers FSB. 
And what was this little bank doing? It was really just acting as a conduit for the mortgage loans that Lehman had purchased. Mostly they didn't originate their own loans. They bought them from other parties. And they would then package these loans up and securitize them. And the thrift was the conduit for this. So, you know, when you see a little bank sticking out that much with a 50% annual equity return, you kind of scratch your head and say, gee, what are they doing? Is it legal? Because, you know, outliers like that usually have a story behind them. And that was what led Dennis Santiago, my partner and I, to start focusing on them, focusing on Washington Mutual, focusing on Countrywide, because all of them stuck out for a variety of reasons. If you looked at their data, uh, Countrywide was turning over its balance sheet three times a year, which is extraordinary. So all of these indicia, these skews, if you will, from normal bank behavior told you that something was going to happen, and it did. Uh, Lehman failed. The firm couldn't be sold. All the economists always wring their hands and said, oh, if only Lehman had been saved. Well, Lehman couldn't have even borrowed from the Fed because they couldn't figure out what their assets were, and there was nobody to attest to what was going on. So, you know, since then, the big change is that I think a lot of the fraud that prevailed in that period, fraud with loans, fraud with securities, uh, all manner of fraud, has uh, moved to different places. The banks today are pretty clean. The bigger broker-dealers, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, uh, Merrill, they all either got bought by a bank or they became banks and became much tamer in terms of the risk they take. But there's still a lot of risk in the system. In fact, the biggest risk today is probably public sector debt because we have so many governments that are obviously insolvent and have no potential to repay their obligations. And eventually they'll have to you know, do what the Germans and the Japanese and also the Fed have been doing, which is forgiving debt. But that's what quantitative easing is. It's a loan to the issuer of the debt, in our case, the Treasury. And uh, as the debt is redeemed, the loan is repaid. But that's really the, the reality behind quantitative easing. It's not stimulus for the private economy. It's a subsidy for public sector uh, and a big subsidy for the banks. So if you look at what's changed over the last 10 years, not too much. The banks are bigger. Uh, The risk is concentrated in the bond market, in uh, CLOs, and all of these wonderful securities with three-letter acronyms. And, you know, we have to try and figure out what normal is because we ain't there yet. And it'll take another 20 years for the Fed to really normalize, quote-unquote, their balance sheet. I'm not sure we'll even do that. Um, because politicians, once they realize that central bankers can come to their rescue, they're going to expect them to do it again. You know, that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. So in the research paper that you published, there were three basic issues that you highlighted. Could you describe what those issues were and are they still relevant and prevalent today? Well, they are, um, you know, you had public policy pushing the expansion of home ownership, which has changed since the crisis. But there's still an awful lot of that in the system. And and you can see the accumulation of risk today at the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, which uh, is the agency that runs Ginnie Mae. Um, That's really the only place where you can get execution for low uh, income, low FICO score borrowers. And the production, the endorsements of that kind of paper are up 
significantly. It's uh, close to 15% of the total flow now. And those loans are going to go bad. The one thing you can depend on is when the borrower doesn't put much down and they have a low FICO score, low income profile, their probability of default if the economy slows down is very high. Um, so that's one big thing. I think the other things are still in place. Fair value accounting, which is a complete pig in a poke, but the folks at the University of Chicago and the accounting profession, the folks at the FASB and the SEC have embraced this nonsense. Uh, and it flows through our entire uh, financial system now. We have all of these educated guesses about what assets are worth that have been included in financial statements. And I'm not sure it's helpful. Uh, working in the mortgage industry, which is where I spent a lot of my time, I can tell you it's definitely not helpful yeah. <laughs> because there are a lot of ways that we present these businesses and public companies that are wrong. And yet neither the FASB nor the SEC nor the industry wants to get into it because it's so complicated. And they might actually end up with a worse solution if they were to start changing things. So I think fair value accounting is, is deeply suspect. And it, it kind of goes along with this millennialist thinking that we've seen today where, you know, we're looking for new things, blockchain and Bitcoin, all the rest of it, right? But most of these concepts don't have a lot of substance. And when I pay somebody to guess what a mortgage servicing right is worth, even with all the mathematical mumbo jumbo they go through, I still don't know what I've got. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is what somebody would pay me for that asset. And it's only that observation of a real price that matters. Yeah. So I think, you know, fair value accounting is a big problem, but it's a cultural problem. Uh, it goes across many different uh, industry sectors, uh, just in terms of the way we think about the world more than anything else. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the problems that were present in, you know, 10 years ago are still here, but the big difference is that the demographic fault that drove that activity that caused the speculation and housing crisis has largely gone by. And today... If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.